Hello and welcome to Blight, Stories in the Key of Decay and Repair. I am Sean Williamson. Since our last show, a lot has happened. A lot is always happening, actually, in a way that if you try to keep up is dizzying and disorienting and comical in the worst possible sense. The former president is officially out of office, but before he left, he made sure to perpetuate an absolutely laughable lie that the election was stolen from him, then used that lie to convince his followers to attack the Capitol and commit murder. COVID-19 vaccine rollout in America has hit its snags, and while over 20 million Americans have been vaccinated, there is still a long way to go. There are reasons for optimism. I mean, there always is. But I don't know. It gets harder and harder to look at things that way. The end of the tunnel seems as far away as ever. We try to keep it positive here on the show, but sometimes it's hard. Optimism becomes the lie. There are days that I feel like if I can't go to readings or shows or movies or sporting events, if I can't be with people and talk and laugh and scheme, then really what is in this whole thing for me? And it's not just about the camaraderie with other people, of course. It's about missing that connection with performers and performances. A year or so before my son Theodore was born, I was stone sober for a stretch. It wasn't for any good reason. I had embarrassed myself badly one time in particular and had embarrassed myself in the years prior on a number of occasions, each discernible from the other. I was living with Heather in the attic apartment above our friends and I was really thinking about what I was going to do with my life and how I wanted to proceed. One night around this time, David Bazan was playing at Cactus Club. Bazan and Pedro the Lion were touring for the 10th anniversary of their album Control and playing the album in its entirety on this tour. Heather was at band practice, and I didn't have anyone to go with, but that didn't really matter. I figured I would know people there. So I walked down. It was warm enough for a light jacket. The streets were mostly empty. I went under the bridge and came up on the show, and this seems obvious, But it was right there. It was happening just as advertised, this event, this moment, just out there, existing only until this point in the imagination of my mind. I walked up to the door, went in, said some hellos, and there was a friend of mine sitting at another door that led to the showroom, and I handed them a $10 bill, and I went in. And then the band took the stage, and Bazan took questions, as always, and it was great, as always, and I walked home sober and went and laid alone in my bed, and I was sort of dumbstruck by what a blessing that was to be able to do something like that, that something like that could exist. No online ticket buying, no Evan Bright confirmation, No Ticketmaster line around the block. Just a beautiful thing happening behind a door. And all I needed to open that door was a $10 bill. As always, check out the Cactus Club website for merch and online programming. Let's all do our part, please, to ensure the survival of independent venues. Today we have a couple other stories about people and their connection to performances. First, a story by Joe Hilton. Joe is a writer currently living in New Jersey. 
She's the co-host of the movie podcast IMD Bitch Fest, available wherever you get your podcasts. Babette's Feast is a quiet movie. The loudest sound I heard in the film was a glass pitcher landing on a tile floor. The plot of Babette's Feast was a bit of a hard sell for me. Two elderly sisters who rejected romantic love in favor of serving the Protestant congregation founded by their father in a remote Danish village take in a French refugee named Babette and allow her to serve as their cook in exchange for shelter. Over the next 14 years, Babette becomes a beloved integral member of the small community. Her only remaining connection to her old life in France is a friend who buys her a lottery ticket every year. Eventually, she wins the lottery, and 10,000 francs arrive for her in the mail. With the birthday of the sister's father approaching, Babette wants to cook a feast in his memory and asks the sisters for their permission. Nervously, they grant it. I enjoy watching the movies that you're supposed to watch. The movies on the list of things to watch before death, the ones with the awards, the ones that your parents or your grandparents remember seeing in a theater years ago and feeling a feeling that they hadn't felt before. I don't feel any pressure to like them or to add them to my own personal list of favorites. Still, it feels good to watch them. It feels like more than checking something off of a list, more than the consumption of art accepted somewhat arbitrarily into a canon, chosen by virtue of values that aren't necessarily yours and that you don't even map onto the films themselves. There are arguments against compulsive consumption of this canon, arguments that I respect and often agree with. I make no argument for it, other than these movies dial me into a sense of something that was around long before me. And when I watch them, I feel invited into a conversation I wasn't part of before. A silent conversation that's always occurring under the surface of things. A whisper of access to something divine that echoes across decades. I expected to be somewhat bored throughout Babette's Feast. I expected to gain a sense of accomplishment at the end of it, a subtle appreciation for the film that I would forget until I came across its name in years to come. What I wasn't expecting was the feast scene, which takes up a full 25 minutes of total runtime. I wasn't expecting to be so moved by the place setting, by the china painted with purple flowers stacked in front of each chair, each plate larger than the one on top of it. I was delighted by the sweetness of a different drink for each course, served in its own special glass. Sherry with the turtle soup, champagne served with caviar and pancakes, pinot noir with quail pastry, more champagne with sponge cake topped with figs and cherries. Surprising tears stung my eyes as Babette sliced a gorgeous ripe papaya, its black seeds secure in its gleaming orange flesh. An overflowing fruit plate, the final course, was served with cognac and coffee. Throughout the feast, the sisters mourn the loss of Babette. They assume she's moving back to France with her winnings. They don't yet know that she has spent everything she has, her entire 10,000 francs on this feast. They don't yet know that her feast will inspire the cranky elders of their congregation to join hands in a circle under the stars and sing. I didn't yet know how often I would think of this film in the coming weeks, how it would fill me with an impossible desire to serve a seven-course meal to everyone I love. I didn't yet know how I would feel every time I remembered the film, awake and connected to all that is precious, temporary, and alive. Next is a story by Parker Winship. 
Parker is a journalist and filmmaker working in narrative, experimental, and documentary cinema. He holds an MFA from the American Film Institute and recently completed the short film A Lark and a Swallow, which premiered at the Eastern Oregon Film Festival, and the doc hybrid Julia and the Rock Dragon, which was showcased at the online Isolation Short Videos Festival. He is currently working on a documentary about rural hunger in Wisconsin. Last year, I became unemployed, lost the same girlfriend multiple times, and stopped leaving my apartment. And while my personal, professional, and social realities turned inside out and revealed their oozing guts, I had a lot of time to watch movies. Once to distract me, once to trick me into thinking I was not alone, once to teach me something new about the world and the people in it, once to get me high on aesthetics, and once to enhance my understanding of filmmaking, the art I love so well. Below, I'm going to list every movie I saw from March 16th, 2020, the day I went into lockdown, through the fall of the same year, describing along the way the blending that took place between some of these films and my consciousness, the damage they sometimes inflict in, and the transcendence they occasionally catalyzed. The first three films I saw were Koyaanisqatsi, Tree of Life, and Fantasia. I chose them because they all play on the scale of deep time, millennia, and eons. It felt back then like the end of the world, and I wanted temporal context to reassure me that even if this wasn't the end of the world, or at least civilization, that was all right in the grand scheme of things. These movies featured the dinosaur apocalypse brought on by meteors, the upheaval of the Anthropocene, the violent fluctuations that were routine on the scale of millions of years. I enlisted my friend Emily to join me on this endeavor, hoping that bringing someone else along would also broaden my perspective on the moment. Emily had been my movie-going buddy, but was, like most of us, stuck and quite shaken, alone in her apartment. Each of us were alone in our rooms in different parts of town, and we hit play on our remotes at the same time and went together into this cosmic unknown. At least that was the plan. I was too in shock to feel much of anything, really, and all the movies illuminated was how foggy my mind was. I kept pausing to perform small tasks, like text my sister or cut off a piece of cheese to eat, until I was horribly out of sync with Emily, and then at least one of us would fall asleep exhausted from worry. After, I kept watching more movies. Vampire, The Arbor, La Strada, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. About six days into lockdown, this was the first one I could actually focus on for more than a few minutes at a time. Targets, Zodiac, Bloodshot, The Curious Case of Benjamin Button, Gigi, A Fish Called Wanda, Life and Nothing More, Ashes Purest White, Safe, Dark Waters, Nightfall, Homework, The Green Fog, Interstellar, Human Desire, Near Dark... Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home, The Hunt, Arthur, Desperado, House, Grass, The Electrolysis of Brine, Hellbound, Hellraiser 2, Police, Reds, The Social Network, Videodrome, House of Games, Homicide, Candyman, A Gay Day, Pulse, Flesh of Morning. These last three, A Gay Day, Pulse, and Flesh of Morning, were experimental short films made, respectively, by Barbara Hammer, Peter Spoker, and Stan Brackage. I saw them in an Instagram Live broadcast by a film curator who projected 16mm prints on the wall of his Hollywood apartment and broadcast it to an audience around the world. Since the project with Emily, I tried a few more synchronized watch parties with friends and family. The movies we watched had all been well-known Hollywood classics, and all of them had played from remastered and compressed files stored in secret Amazon data warehouses. This felt very different. 
Film frames were projected onto a wall and gone a moment later. It reminded me that movies weren't just the old world captured and stored. These felt alive and reminded me that the world was really still out there, flashing and burning and starting and ending and starting up all over again the next moment. The archivist who does this weekly show is named Mark Toscano. He is a luminary in experimental film curation and preservation and one of the most important figures in the Los Angeles film scene today. His Instagram account is Preservation Insanity, and the live stream starts every Tuesday night at 8 p.m. Pacific. I recommend it. I kept watching. Ricky Jay and his 52 assistants, The Spanish Prisoner, The Untouchables, Glengarry Glen Ross, Gone Girl, Old Joy, Die Hard with a Vengeance, Bad Education, Casino Royale, Butthole Surfers, Yin Yang, Summer Light, A Better Tomorrow, Canetta, Four Nights of a Dreamer, Skyfall, That Thing You Do. Uh, I loved my girlfriend Hannah, but she was not a film freak. She enjoyed movies, but unlike me, she didn't watch out of compulsion or to become intoxicated on experimental new modes of the form. When it came to her cinematic taste, she was, for lack of a better term, a normal person. Actually, that's not right. She wasn't my girlfriend at the time. She had already dumped me, and I had already made my plans to leave Los Angeles at the end of the spring. But I was still in town then, and we started to see each other again, and we didn't exactly know what to call what we were doing. It was one more uncertainty in our lives when we certainly didn't need any more, but it was also very familiar. And of course, being with her did something for my mental and spiritual well-being, which movies could not. But movies were still very much a part of it, because both of us felt that watching movies together was one of the most pleasant activities that two people in love can engage in. The same, however, cannot be said for deciding what movie we would watch. But we found common ground, at least sometimes, on Tom Hanks movies. Like many of our generation, Hannah and I have been trained by Hollywood movies to experience warm and fuzzy feelings anytime we see Tom Hanks on screen. We watched That Thing You Do, ate burritos, and drank beer. I felt full and safe and warm, like it was Friday night and my parents had brought home a pizza and a tape from the video store. I felt like a child, and I also felt like Hannah and I were back together. I felt okay, which is to say that it felt very different from how life usually felt in April of 2020. And I kept watching. Meek's Cut Off, The Passion of Anna, Love Hospital Trailer, Bon Ami, Cast Away, God's Country, You've Got Mail, The Friends of Eddie Coyle, Lost Highway, Joe vs. the Volcano, Jaws, Solaris, The Russian One, Marnie, Anselmo, The Human Surge, By the Time It Gets Dark, Back to the Future Part 2, Back to the Future, Notes on an American Film Director at Work, Martin Scorsese, Forrest Gump, Contact, The Sacrifice, Mulholland Drive, No Data Plan, Sleepless in Seattle, What Lies Beneath, Closed Lines, Mad Max, Fury Road, Black and White Drawing, Moonlight Sonata, Naked Gun, 33 and a Third, The Final Insult, Dr. Strangelove, or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb, California Split, Hard Eight. I watched California Split and Hard Eight while getting very drunk with my roommate. An incredible improvised double feature about career gamblers to get smashed to. Hannah was there, but she didn't watch. She was tracking social media closely during the early days of the George Floyd protests. I didn't grasp yet how important that moment was. She did. I was thinking about movies. And a day or two later, when I did realize the gravity of the situation, I wondered, probably with some defensiveness, if it was okay for some people to be less involved in politics than others. Are some people by inclination activists, and others by inclination artists, and still others by inclination both, and is that okay because the world may need all three? And then I wondered, where is the line between differences in personality and the differences in morality and responsibility? Or are these differences in personality actually determined, at least to some extent, by race, class, education, and privilege? I was white and middle class and not rich, but plenty privileged growing up, and so did I use my well-cushioned time and comfort to fixate on a medium of art which largely caters to adolescence instead of examining the injustices in our society and doing my part to correct them? 
Or is there some chemical reaction beyond my control which caused the obsession with movies and which brings me the deepest joy when I experience them? Is it, in other words, true love? Or is it avoidance or apathy? Because I cannot help but love movies all the time. I try to do some of my loving of the world through the movies I watch and the ones I make. But is there a sin in confusing the real world with that of cinema? And at the same time, is there another sin in separating the two? More movies, Before Sunset and Before Midnight. Both watched with Hannah during my last days in L.A. These were also the days of curfew because of protests, when you weren't supposed to leave your home after 8 p.m. On the very same day they imposed the curfew, restaurants also opened back up after a month-long lockdown. And so it was bizarrely a time of both notable liberation and oppression, new signs of normalcy, while simultaneously there were protests and police and fire in the streets. There was a charge in the air. You might remember it. Anything could happen and was happening, but then in a way nothing happened, or not really, or not as much as we hoped it would. We were inside by dark like they told us to be, and we were watching Ethan Hawke and Julie Delpy age in front of our eyes. Saw their complete and blind love for each other begin to fracture and compete in a no-win contest against their other loves, themselves, their children, their world. Hannah and I, compared to the married couple Jesse and Celeste in Before Midnight, were a brand new couple. We technically weren't even dating, but we were together and had been for a year now. We knew things were about to really end, or at least drastically change between us when I left town, and so the Before movies could not help but make us think of our own relationship, and also to distance us from it. Our relationship would never become that fraught, that lived in, that loaded, that interesting. Instead, we would simply not be in each other's lives. It made what we had appear feeble and performed, and the dimensions of our feelings and our bonds to each other vague. But go under and over this meta-commentary, and there is something there that feels very real. As I write this, I can feel her skin under my hands. I can hear her whispering. Her voice sounds sad, is stating some plain fact which sounds tense with the questions it isn't asking. I'm hearing it as if it were spoken at point-blank range, her breath warming my ear. The next day I left town in a rented minivan and drove to my childhood home in Wisconsin. I went to the Grand Canyon, hiked through Arches National Park, and in Nebraska saw the most violent thunderstorm of my life. I didn't watch a complete movie on the road, but back home I quarantined away from my parents in their basement, which was fortunately furnished with a 45-inch flat screen, and I kept watching, but not at my previous rate. What was I doing? I don't remember. I watched Duck You Sucker... Shirley unfriended the dark web, dread, hill of freedom. I tested negative for the coronavirus and came upstairs, hugged my mother, and kept watching movies, but now sometimes I was not alone. To five bloods, get on the bus, to sleep with anger, big, now Hanks had become common ground between my parents and I, the prison in 12 landscapes, the hottest August, juke, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, watched on Father's Day with my father, the stories we tell, La Corbeau, Iron Man 3, Hamilton, Michael, The Vast of Night, 14, Grey's Anatomy, The Soderbergh's Balding Grey Movie, Ring Elevio, American Graffiti, Awakenings, The Old Guard, Shrek, Hiroshima Monomore, Bloody Nose, Empty Pockets, Hannah Takes the Stairs, Spirited Away, Enemy of the State, Black Girl, Porco Rosso, Princess Mononoke. If you're somewhat of a film freak yourself, you might notice at this point that my viewing habits at times trend along a particular filmmaker. For example, three of the last five films listed are directed by Hayao Miyazaki, and the films I've listed so far also include multiple works by directors David Mamet, Spike Lee, Kelly Reichardt, Andrei Tarkovsky, Todd Haynes, David Fincher, Nora Ephron, Brett Story, and Robert Zemeckis. It's possible that you're curious how I come to decide on these movies, or hear about some of the more obscure titles. Much of it stems from my own interests and time invested in researching certain filmmakers or periods of filmmaking. But many of them also came out of my growing fandom of, and almost addiction to, a cinephiliac podcast called Blank Check. 
I had listened to the podcast before, but my obsessive listening had blossomed in tandem with the newfound heights of my isolation during the pandemic. Since adolescence, I have inadvertently but systematically reconstructed my neural wiring to get a hit of dopamine every time I see a new film, and a smaller one when I receive novel news or opinions about films from others. Previously, I'd relied on going to the movies, talking to people about movies, and reading industry trade publications to get this fix. Now, with movie theaters closed and the film industry and traditional social life on hold, not one of these mechanisms was producing hits at the required dosage. And so I sought out a new mechanism to get the drug which I have tailored my brain to crave. Blank Check did the trick. The podcast is composed of miniseries, which go chronologically through the filmography of one director at a time. Directors so successful they were given the so-called Blank Check by the studio system to make large-scale, creatively ambitious films. For example, they did a miniseries on Miyazaki, which inspired me to watch every film he ever directed over the summer. I watch the movies they discuss because I want to know what they're talking about, but also, I believe, because somehow I have begun to psychologically confuse the hosts of the podcast with real-world friends, and I seek their approval by watching the movies they think are cool, even though I have never and very probably will never meet them. I listen to Blank Check when I run, while I stretch after I run, while I cook, while I eat, drive, walk, shit, when I just sit around. Once last fall, I was walking through the woods in Wyalusing State Park, it's a very serene and secluded area right where the Mississippi and Wisconsin rivers meet. I was standing below a waterfall. The air was cool, but I was warm from my hike, and so I took off my jacket, held my hand in the fall, splashed my face with the water, and laid against a smooth rock to close my eyes. What I heard in my head was not the sounds of trees creaking and water rushing, but chattering about the last movie I had watched. It was my chattering my words, but in the voices of the blank check host, Griffin and David. They were talking about the movie star persona of Tom Cruise and the effective and ineffective comedic timing and suspense in Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol. I couldn't turn it off to hear the waterfalls. I felt crazy and hopelessly disassociated from nature and from immediate experience. My OCD-natured relationship to film had metastasized, morphed into an addiction to the experience of other people watching a movie, and I had thoroughly overdosed on this new synthetic drug. I had taken something that was intended to have a weak potency, a weekly podcast, and maxed it out by binging all previous episodes. I couldn't think straight when I was on a relaxing camping trip, which was meant to clear my head, and it wasn't even movies I was thinking about, but other people talking about movies. It was yucky and I swore to myself I would wait a full week before listening to another episode. Still watching. Chungking Express, Solaris, The American One, Domino, The Tony Scott One, Day of the Outlaw, Broken Arrow, Kiki's Delivery Service, While We're Young, Uncut Gems, Kingdom of Dreams and Madness, The Wind Rises, Richard Jewell, Showgirls, Castle in the Sky, Inside Out, Fargo, Chapatulis, Bill and Ted Face the Music, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey, Speed, Death Becomes Her, Spirited Away, Again, Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind, Cliffhanger, Sweet Home Alabama, Dazed and Confused, I Want to Hold Your Hand, I'm Thinking of Ending Things, Used Cars, Synecdoche, New York, How to Survive a Plague, The Long Goodbye, Howl's Moving Castle, Fantastic Fungi, The Thin Blue Line, Tenet. I suppose something should be said about Tenet. I saw it in a movie theater, the first I'd been to in six months. In any other year of my adult life, I typically go to the movie theater once, twice, or three times a week. I go when I'm relaxed to keep feeling relaxed, go when I'm uptight to loosen up, go when there's a movie I'm dying to see, go when there's nothing in particular I want to see but I'm craving to be in the dark and submitting to flickering lights. In L.A., where I did not have a car, at the end of a long day at the job I detested, I would take the bus to the Arclight Hollywood to see Deadpool 2. 
though I had never seen the original. I would take the bus in the opposite direction to the Hammer Museum to see a retrospective of work by experimental filmmakers like Nathaniel Dorsky and Jerome Heiler, or to the limits of the city to see an art house movie only showing in one theater like Ethan Hawke's Blaze at the Lindley Santa Monica. Or I would walk to the Lumiere Music Hall in Beverly Hills for an evening show of Leave No Trace, or I would take the bus to the Purple Line train station then head downtown to see whatever visiting artists were screening work at the CalArts Red Cat Theater. I went to movies with people a lot, but I went alone even more. And last summer, I went to Tenet alone. I saw it at the AMC Mayfair Mall just outside of Milwaukee. I didn't just go to the movie alone, I had nearly the whole Megaplex to myself. With a dozen or so screens, the lobby was meant to hold hundreds, but there was just me and two mass staff members. One to sell and tear my ticket, and another to man all ten registers at the concession stand, though they had no customers. There weren't even posters or promotional cardboard standees because there were no coming attractions to promote. I'd seen this lobby so many times full of birthday parties and first dates and every other kind of social occasion, so this was, if not apocalyptic, then just very, very sad. I went to the first showing at 3 p.m. There were five other people scattered around the enormous IMAX theater. I wore an N95 mask, wiped my armrest down before I sat, and crossed my arms so that I wouldn't touch them anyway. At no point during the movie did I approach a state of relaxation. That's both because it was the first public place I'd been in for more than a few minutes in six months, and also because of the nature of Tenet. It is a loud film, a film that seemed to ceaselessly scream at and pummel me without my ever having much sense of why it was doing this, or what was motivating the characters to their ludicrous dramatic action. That being said, I loved it and I very much look forward to seeing it again. I don't know if Tenet was a good movie or not, whatever that means, but I do know it was a movie. I was transported, my senses bombarded, my mind subjected to the bewildering, wanton, and reckless imagination of an artist's vision for two and a half hours. I cannot tell you how grateful I am to have had that experience. I cannot tell you how much pain it brings me to wonder how long it will be before I have that again, to fear that it may be the last time, and that most movie theaters will have to close by the time distributors start regularly releasing movies again. After the movie, I walked into the nearly empty parking structure, sanitized my hands twice over, took off my mask, and rubbed the red impressions marked on my cheeks by its straps. I called my parents, three of my best friends, including Emily, and my now officially ex-girlfriend Hannah, to tell them all I had gone to a movie. I also sent a selfie of me in the theater to four other close friends. This is similar to the number of people I expect to tell if I ever have a partner who gives birth to my child. I suppose even when I go to a movie alone, I think of it as a social event, and I wanted to consummate that. I think I wanted these people in my life to know that I was still me, which meant that I was still going to movies, and I wanted to know that they were still them, that is, that they were the people in my life whom I rambled to about the movies I see. I love movies so much that I can't help but feel they are a part of me, and so for me to have a relationship with other people, to share myself with them, I need for the movies I experience to be a part of them too. Tenet was the number one movie in America, and not one of them had seen it. Many didn't even know it existed. As someone on Blank Check once said of a particularly obscure movie, I might as well have been describing my dream. And I kept watching. The Maltese Cross Movement, 77, Coney, Romancing the Stone, Beowulf, Allied, Welcome to Marwin, There Will Be Blood, Raiders of the Lost Ark, Peeping Tom, Ponyo, California Split, Again, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, The Mirror, Mission Impossible 2, Symbiopsychotaxoplasm, Take 1, Mission Impossible Fallout, The Castle of Cagliostro, Manakamana, Munchen, Berlin, Wanderung, She Dies Tomorrow, Mission Impossible, Rogue Nation, Mission Impossible, Ghost Protocol, Jack Reacher, Crawl, The Sleeping Beauty, The French One, directed by Catherine Briot. Mission Impossible, Rogue Nation, again, this time with my parents, Aliens.
Thank you for listening to Blight, Stories in the Key of Decay and Repair. I am Sean Williamson. Please check us out on Instagram and Twitter. A rating on Apple Pods is a true gift. As always, links to cited articles and information can be found in the show notes. Show music today by Sean Stefani. Studio mix by Shane Olivo. Playing us out today is Cairns. I first discovered this song through the Beat Street Video Festival, which was this really cool collection of music videos curated by Natasha Woods last year. I will include a link in the show notes. Cairns is a project led by Milwaukee-based multi-instrumentalist John Larkin, sometimes accompanied by a group of collaborators. His compositions range from neat and minimalist to blurry and chaotic. Recent explorations themes include room harmonics, feedback loops, extracting memories from experiences, isolation meditation, melodic deconstruction, repetition, and other things like that. Here is Shimmer. Shimmer.